Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This is A.B. Dauji and this is the Big Picture broadcasting simultaneously on Radio Islam and Radio Al-Ansar. And how's it, eh? Dear Bayo Beno or Buzrukos of varying shades of piety ranging from the deeply committed to the soda water zigzag variety. Yes, it's the big picture, your weekly dose of news analysis, unpacking complex issues and delivering an occasional sharp kick to the backsides of rogue politicians. All done, of course, with tongue firmly in cheek. Yes, folks, fasten your seatbelts, put your seat in the upright position and switch off your cell phones. Let's take off as usual with the crazy, bizarre, and loony stories that have made it into the media. Well, last week I told you about an auction that took place in Paris where Napoleon's hat went for 1.9 million euros. <laughs> That's uh, 40 million rands. And there was another auction in London where Lionel Messi's soccer World Cup jersey went for around 200 million rands. Well, sad to say, my oversized pajamas that I got as a birthday present, which I put up for auction on this program, couldn't even get a bid for 500 rands. Can you believe it? Eh? You don't know what a bargain you were getting, Mamu. In years to come, when uh, Sotheby's auctioneers in London announce A.B. Dowdy's pajamas for auction, the bids will run into millions millions <coughs> and you're going to regret it habibi just as what happened to an item that belonged to steve jobs i just read about it steve jobs he was the co-founder of the apple company that big company that makes the iphone and computers etc well way back in those very early days when he was really battling steve wrote a check for four dollars yes just four dollars to the radio shack company in and that was in 1976 of course his signature is on the check that he wrote that check for four dollars was auctioned at a boston uh auction company guess how much it fetched <laughs> any idea no that four dollar check actually itself is just a piece of paper worth nothing was sold at a bid of $36,000 that is around 650,000 rands if you think that is crazy in 1973 he applied for a job Steve Job applied for a job as an electronic tech or design engineer he signed the job application form that form was sold at an auction in 2018 for $174,757. That, dear uncle, is equal to around 3,320,000 rands. Well, here's more Gandu stuff. Eh? In the very early days of the Apple company, Steve Jobs, he wore brown suede Birkenstock sandals. It was quite worn out. At an auction last year in New York, 
This worn-out pair of sandals went for $218,750. And that is a whopping 4,156,000 rands. Yeah. Yes. For a worn-out pair of sandals? So listen, Motabaji, I've got a perfectly good pair of chumpers in my cupboard. Eh? Nothing wrong with it at all. If you walk slowly, the Velcro strap at the back won't come off, eh? So make me an offer. Say 10,000 rands, eh? Yes, yes, what a bargain, eh? <laughs> Think about it. But hurry, because I'm sure if I advertise it, I'll get lots of WhatsApp messages. So the story is, you dos, your loss, ah, baby. You dos, your loss. Okay, here's another bizarre story. Every day we hear some hell of a story about crime in our country. We almost take it for granted like load shedding eh? it's sort of well accepted part of life a murder here a murder there hijacking a robbery and so on nothing shocks us anymore well dear listeners i almost fell off my chair when i read a story yesterday a lady was given a sentence of 50 years behind bars for stealing from her company well, how much did uh, Hildegard Stiencamp steal from the company she worked for, in the name of the company, Medtronic Pty Limited? How much did she? Let me tell you how much. She was found guilty of 336 charges relating to the theft of <laughs> 537 million rands. 537 million rands. Yes, I can't even whistle anymore. The magistrate, Philip Fenter, was himself very shocked. He said, to comprehend that one employee stole so much money from her employer is mind-boggling. I think this auntie, she really takes the cake. In fact, the old bakery, a super chorwan who will be changing the life of Wagyu Gourmet Steaks caviar and champagne to thick slices of brown bread with strawberry jam and black tea. 537 million, yes. <laughs> okay, one last story, and this one is all about crime once again. But listeners, I must warn you that as bad as crime is in South Africa, you have never ever heard of such a serious one that I'm gonna talk about now. And therefore, I must warn sensitive listeners to please switch off your phones right now. Okay, yes, and if there are children nearby, please ask them to leave the room as it could prove traumatic to them and could result in long-term psychological damage. <laughs> okay, are you ready? Let me read to you from the Guardian newspaper. It says, in Japan, pigeons may have become the victim of crime after police arrested a Tokyo taxi driver on suspicion of deliberately driving into a flock of birds killing one of them. Suspect uh, Atsushi Ozawa, 50 years old, he says that he used his car to kill a common pigeon, which is not a game animal, in the Japanese capital last month, and was arrested on Sunday for violating wildlife protection laws, a Tokyo police spokesman told Agence France Press. The suspect told the police he had driven into the birds because, ha, saw. Roads, roads are for people. 
it's up to the pigeons to avoid cars. This was reported in the local media. The taxi driver allegedly sped off from traffic lights after they had turned green and plowed into the birds at a speed of 37 miles per hour, 60 kilometers an hour, according to Japanese media. The alleged incident was reported to police by a passerby who was alerted by the sound of a car engine as it accelerated. A, uh, a vet performed a post-mortem... <laughs> <laughs> a vet performed a post-mortem examination on the pigeon and determined its cause of death as traumatic shock. Given his job as a professional driver, police described his action as highly malicious, a consideration that prompted them to proceed with the unusual arrest, according to Fuji TV network. Mm. <laughs> there you are, folks. Quite a harrowing story, hey? I hope it doesn't give you nightmares, Habibi. And, and you know, I like the part. A vet performed a post-mortem examination on the pigeon and determined its cause of death as traumatic shock. <laughs> I wonder what kind of psychological assessment he did on the dead pigeon. And I wonder what sentence the driver got for such a huge crime. Maybe 50 years like that, auntie. <laughs> right now to the big topic that's on everyone's minds. Dear listeners, I just can't watch Al Jazeera anymore. I, I, and I don't open the video clips about Palestine that fill social media every day, almost every hour. I just can't watch. I, I, it, it's just too heartbreaking, too gut-wrenching, too depressing, just too painful. People running with their little babies, running desperately with their little ones in, the, in their arms, some of them horribly injured, some already dead. Fathers running to the hospitals hoping to save the little bodies. Mothers hugging the lifeless ones, not wanting to let go of their precious angels, small bodies wrapped in white. No, 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 no. I can't watch anymore. Hey, it's so painful. And, and then I think to myself, if I feel so much of pain just watching it on TV, how much more, a million times more, those who are experiencing this, actually experiencing this loss, must be feeling deep, unbelievable, unbearable pain and trauma. I can't watch Al Jazeera or the video clips anymore. And, and also... I wonder at the same time, what if there was no Al Jazeera or social media? Maybe we would have the, the BBCs, the CNNs showing us a very sanitized version of the wholesale slaughter. No doubt we would be left less sensitized and feel much less pain than we do now watching the horror unfolding. So full credit to Al Jazeera for giving us the unvarnished, graphic, complete picture of the horror, of the horror in real time, right there in your lounge. And it also has also made a huge contribution to informing, to informing and changing world opinion. You know, in the old days, we used to struggle to get our voices heard. I remember way back when CNN that 
24-hour news network covered the Gulf War in 1991, the bombardment of Iraq by the United States. It was, it was a hopelessly one-sided perspective. It was almost like a celebration, flashes of light like fireworks as the bombs fell on Baghdad. Very little was shown of the consequences of those bombs falling in, of the death and destruction. It was all tightly controlled. America delivering freedom and democracy via F-16 fighter jets. Wonderful stuff, Habibi. But let me park it there. Today, dear class, we are going to unpack some terms and expressions, some definitions that are sometimes unclear or very often deliberately distorted. Your call is important to us, so please pay attention. Now we're going to take a step back and look at the big picture, okay? Question one, are the Palestinians an oppressed people? Well, I suppose the answer to that is obvious. But for the record, let's look at the evidence. And briefly, Jews came from Europe and violently took over 78% of historic Palestine. And in the process, they destroyed over 500 Palestinian villages, killed thousands, cleared off over half the Palestinian population. Ethnic cleansing, Nakba. And these people fled to neighboring countries where they are still there today, marinating, hoping to come back to their homes. And so the state of Israel was thus created in 1948. Then in 1967, again by violence, that 22% of historic Palestine was captured. Since then, the Palestinians have been subjected to draconian measures. Thousands have been, thousands of homes have been demolished. Hundreds have been killed. Freedom of movement have been severely restricted. Don't pass. Well, you have to carry that detention without trial. And you know the story. Military rules apply. Children were even tried, are tried in military courts. So, in conclusion, yes, the Palestinians are an oppressed people. Question two. Do the Palestinian people have the right to resist oppression? Again, the answer is obvious, but let's look at the definition. In international law, the right to resist is closely related to the principle of self-determination. It is widely recognized that a right to self-determination arises in a situation of col colonial domination, foreign occupation, and racist regimes that deny a segment of the population political participation. The right to resist is a human right. The right to resist, depending on how it is defined, can take the form of civil disobedience or armed resistance against a tyrannical government or foreign occupation. Although Hirsch Lord Pact, one of the most distinguished jurists, called the right to resist the supreme human right, this rights position in international human rights law is tenuous tenuous and rarely discussed. 42 countries explicitly recognize a constitutional right to resist, as does the African Charter on Human and People's Rights. Hmm? So there you have it. And of course, South Africa is the best example of such a resistance. 
First came the peaceful actions, demonstrations, and so followed by armed resistance against the apartheid regime. So, conclusion, yes, it's perfectly acceptable to resist oppression. Right, on to question three. Class, are you still paying attention? Okay. <laughs> question three. What manner of, of oppression do Palestinians face? And the answer is again quite obvious. It's the crime of apartheid. Who said that? Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and the Israeli Human Rights Organization, B'Tselem, and many others. Yes, of course, there has been pushback, arguments denying that Israel's treatment of the Palestinians amounts to apartheid. But there is a new international definition of what apartheid is all about. Not as some would say, yeah, it's not like South Africa, like separate buses and separate beaches and so on. It's about discrimination and human rights that are denied to Palestinians. That's what makes it apartheid. But Israel says that uh, uh, that all these well-respected human rights organizations are wrong, are biased in declaring Israel an apartheid state. So let me bring in a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Pogren. Some of the bullies <laughs> listening to this program will remember him. He has a very brief CV. Benjamin Pogren was born and educated in Cape Town. As a student leader, he fought against the imposition of apartheid at the University of Cape Town. He was deputy editor of the Rand Daily Mail in Johannesburg, which was closed out because of its stand against apartheid. There you are. Nice, glowing um, CV, an anti-apartheid activist, Benjamin Pogra. So, there you are. Benjamin Pogra was a strong opponent of apartheid when he lived here. And then he moved to Israel in 1997. Incredibly, he became a strong defender, a supporter of Israel, and rejected the claim that Israel was an apartheid state. In 2014, he wrote a book titled Drawing Fire, in which he strongly defended Israel, saying that it did not practice apartheid. Well, 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 well. In August this year, he wrote an article published in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz in which he made a shocking U-turn. Let me read some parts of it. It's also been reported in The Guardian where you can access it. Benjamin Pogren, just put there, Benjamin Pogren, and the article will pop up. P-O-G-R-U-N-D. So here's what he says in his article. Israel 2023, South Africa 1948. I've lived through it before. Power grabbing fascism and racism, the destruction of democracy. Israel is going where South Africa was 75 years ago. It's like watching the replay of a horror movie. South Africa enjoyed democracy. That is, among the whites who made up 20% of the population, black people had no right to vote. Those who were not white suffered heavy racial discrimination in every part of their lives. In Israel, Arabs, that's Palestinians, who form about 21% of the population, 
can vote. These are the people who are living within Israel, not West Bank, Gaza, and so on, right? So he says here that this 21% who are living within Israel's borders can vote, but they suffer discrimination. Muslims and Christians are not drafted, uh, meaning uh, asked to go into the army. And those who do not do army service lose out on benefits. The Jewish National Fund owns about 13% of Israel's land and bars non-Jews, stops non-Jews, that is, Arabs, from owning or renting it. The coalition promises to deepen the discrimination. It has already threatened to withdraw millions of shekels meant for upgrading poor Arab living conditions. When you hear Arab, you must know you talking about Palestinians. In 2001, he says, I joined Israel's government delegation to the World Conference Against Racism in Durban. The government of Ariel Sharon invited me because of my expertise after a quarter century as a journalist in South Africa. My speciality was reporting on apartheid close up. At the conference, I was disturbed and angered by the multitude of lies and exaggerations about Israel. During the years since, I have argued with all my might against the accusation that Israel is an apartheid state in lectures, newspaper articles, on TV, and in a book. However, the accusation is becoming fact. First, the nation-state law elevates Jews. You know, Israel says that it's a, it's a country for Jews. It's a nation for Jews. So first, the nation-state law elevates Jews above fellow citizens who are Arab, that's Muslims, Druze, Bedouin, and Christian. Every day sees government ministers and their allies venting racism and following up with discriminatory actions. There is no mercy even for the Druze, who, like Jews, have been conscripted into the military since 1956. We deny Palestinians any hope of freedom or normal lives. We believe our own propaganda that a few million people will meekly accept perpetual inferiority and oppression. The government is driving Israel deeper and deeper into inhuman, cruel behavior beyond any defense. I don't have to be religious to know that this is shameful, a shameful betrayal of Jewish morality and history. We are at the mercy of fascists and racists both carefully chosen words, who cannot and will not stop. I write about South Africa and Israel because I know both of them. 53 years in one and nearly 26 years in the other. <coughs> well, there you are. Some extracts from Benjamin Pogren's powerful confession that where he's pointing out similarities between apartheid South Africa and apartheid Israel, straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So let me make a clear connection. Israel is an apartheid state, meaning that it's a racist state. So therefore, it's logical to conclude that those who support Israel are racist. Clear? Yes? Just as if you supported apartheid Israel, you were a racist. By the way, Benjamin Pogren mentioned 2001, the anti-racism conference in Durban. Wow! 
It was such a huge event. Thousands of people from all around the world attended. Durban was chock-a-block, almost came to a standstill. At the ICC and at the stadium next door, almost the whole event was turned into an anti-Israel demonstration. It was about racism. People were coming with their stories from around the world. But uh, it, it, it became largely, the main focal, focus was uh, on Israel. And there were, well, there was a massive march attended by some of our government ministers. Very, very exciting time. Huge march. And I mentioned this, I'm mentioning this because three rabbis, from an organization called Natura Carta, that's the rabbis who are opposed to Zionism. They're based in New York mainly, Natura Carta. Check it up. Rabbis who oppose Zionism, they arrived here. And I, I, well, I was taking them around, I hosted them and all of that, a long story. One of them was Rabbi David Weiss. Well, <laughs> That was in 2001, yeah. So, one of them was Rabbi David Weiss. And, and um, I went, uh, the, sorry, last week, I was at the big conference on Palestine here in Johannesburg. And Mandela Mandela was the main speaker. It was all organized by them. Anyway, the three rabbis were there. One of them was, Rabbi David Weiss. As I said, I last saw him in 2001. So I went up to him and put my hand out to him. And he took it very quickly and he smiled very broadly and said, Amy, how are you? <laughs> As you can imagine, I was totally surprised. I said, wow, you remember me? He said, of course I do, very clearly. How I remember how you took us around Durban and also to that jewelry shop in the middle of town, and I bought a necklace for my wife. Well, listeners, I tell you, it was such a delight to speak to him, to, to David, really lifted my spirits. Uh, there are lots of stories about my experience with the rabbis. Most of them were quite funny. And that was in uh, 2001, right? What happened at that time, my experience. But one I'll always remember was, was this one. Rabbi Dover told me on Friday morning that from 6 p.m. onwards is the start of the Sabbath. And uh, he said to me, uh, he said to me that a few m moments before 6 o'clock, right, maybe about 15 minutes, or they have to do certain very serious rituals to begin the Sabbath. They can't be... Uh, observing the Sabbath unless they do these rituals, serious stuff. And one important part of the ritual is that they have to have a bunch of grapes which they squeeze the juice from and drink it. That is like the start of the Sabbath. One of the things they have to do, have to do, compulsory. So he said, Abi, uh, can you get us some grapes before 6 p.m. sunset? I said, no problem, Rabbi, no problem. Well, after Juma Salah, uh, I fetched the Rabbi from the beachfront. Uh, I think it was around 4 o'clock or something. 
and took him to Randery's Jewelers in the center of town, I think it's Victoria Street. Uh, I told Faisal, my brother, to get me the grapes and meet me there. All very relaxed, chilled out, right? And uh, so Rabbi was checking the jewelry and all and relaxed, and then Faisal called me. He said, Abi, no grapes anywhere in Durban, out of season. Ooh. <laughs> uh, it's now 5.15. Heart attack. No grapes equals no Sabbath. It's like missing next day Rosa in Ramadan. Serious stuff. Panic, panic, panic. And of course, Rabbi had no idea that I was dying. And Faisal told me that Woolworths, he checked all around Durban, but it's that Woolworths at the pavilion had some grapes. Well, I rushed the rabbi downstairs very quickly. He didn't know what was happening. He bought his jewelry and he went downstairs and into Victoria Street. The street was full, right? <sighs> full, full of people. What to do? If I took him to the beachfront and dropped him off there to start his ritual uh, around 5.30, and then if I drove from there to the pavilion to get the grapes, Kalas, <laughs> it would be too late to start the Sabbath. The traffic was crazy. It was Friday in, in the center of Durban. Traffic was crazy. So uh, when I went downstairs from the jewelers uh, in the street, I turned to look around very panic-stricken. And then I saw, uh, I saw a Muslim family there. Everybody was actually looking at us. Hey, who's this lover with the rabbi with the big hat and the chortlis and all of that? And then I saw a Muslim family right there. And I said, hey, Mota, please take this person to the beachfront. Uh, you know what? He is a great supporter of Palestine. Mota answered, hey, no problem, Kazi. He and his wife smiled and they took him. They took the rabbi off to the beachfront. Off they went. I went to my car and drove like hell to the pavilion. I got there, ran into Woolworths, um, fruit department, asked the assistants, where's the grapes? And he said, sorry, uncle, sold out. Ooh. <laughs> I'm finished. Last three hairs fell out of my head. Ulcers started popping up all over, sweating like crazy. Just then the manager came. Sir, did you phone for grapes? Uh, here it is. I, I kept them aside for you. I paid, rushed to my car, drove like a madman through heavy Friday afternoon traffic. Hazards on. It's 5.40. Shot through traffic lights. No parking outside the beachfront apartment, left the car on the road, rushed inside, couldn't wait for the lift, ran up the stairs, nearly collapsed, opened the door. Rabbi David said, Avi, we thought you wouldn't make it on time. We were really panicking. Hope it wasn't a problem. I said, no, it was no problem. Very easy. No problem at all. <laughs> so that was one episode I'll never forget, dear listeners. The day I nearly died. <laughs> Anyway, back to today's subject. Right, so, where was I? Where was I? Are you paying attention? Question four. Is it a genocide? Again, the answer is clear according to this definition. Definition? Genocide is the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular racial, political, or cultural group. Hmm. You got that? Brief definition. And that's exactly what is happening in Gaza right now. And most legal experts are calling it just that, genocide. 
So again, if you support Israel, you are a racist and a supporter of genocide. That, dear listeners, is putting it very starkly, straightforward. But, of course, people, mainly in the West, say over and over and over again, that is, of course, uh, genocide Joe also, Biden, Israel has the right to defend itself. Hamas is using Palestinian civilians as human shields. This is the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust. Over and over and over you, again you hear this. Well, on the last point, maybe a better description would be the genocide of the Palestinians is the worst atrocity since the Holocaust. Yes. What the Palestinians are experiencing is a genocide, a holocaust. And the point about Israel has a right to defend itself, hey, sure, wait a minute here, right? Do the Palestinians have a right to defend themselves against attacks? And that started long before October 7th. In fact, from 1948. Do they? Do they have a right? Huh? What's your answer, Israel? You killed so many over the years, caused so much of pain and suffering, which never ended. But now suddenly you tell the world that you are the victim. And those who are stupid or racist, they believe you. And you say you have a right to defend yourself. How? Mm -hmm. How? That's the question. By killing nearly 20,000 people, 7,000 of them little children, injuring over 50,000? Yes, of course. Hiding behind each one of them is a Hamas terrorist. Stupid racist, genocide supporters, believe you. You flatten entire neighborhoods, huge areas flattened to the ground. Hmm? Massive areas for self-defense, eh? More than 50% of homes in Gaza have been damaged or completely destroyed. With people buried in the rubble, self-defense. People are bombed. And when the injured are taken to the hospitals, hospitals are bombed. Self-defense. Leave the north, Gaza city, and run to the south to be safe. And when you run, snipers take shots at you. Self-defense. No food or water or fuel allowed for the people there. No water, food, because you said they are animals. No food or water or fuel allowed. People will die. Babies in incubators. Self-defense. 100 men, some of them 15 years old, taken from their families in, in a shelter at a school, stripped to their underwear, made to sit in the street for hours in the biting cold and taken away in a truck to God knows where. It's called self-defense. Keep repeating the mantra. We have the right to self-defense. We are only targeting Hamas. And the stupid racists and supporters of genocide swallowed this bull. You know what? I think I said this before. The apartheid government was very bad, very bad, but certainly not on this level. 
The apartheid government, of course, knew that many ANC guys were living in the townships, but they never surrounded Soweto and bombed it nonstop uh, and say, well, the ANC is using the civilians of Soweto as human shields. Gaza is being bombed indiscriminately, carpet bombed, like what America did in Vietnam and Cambodia and Iraq. Almost the whole world is watching this genocide. And so Antonio Guterres, head of the UN, had to do something. Not long ago, a few weeks ago, he was bold enough to say the Hamas attack did not occur in a vacuum, meaning that it was because Gaza was under a suffocating siege, a pressure cooker. For that, Israel said he must resign. Israel has a serious problem with the truth, but it generated so many lies that the racists in the West are ready to accept. Anyway, so Guterres made another bold move two days ago. Uh, under Article 99 of the United Nations Charter, he himself has the right to call for a res resolution. And so the resolution called for a ceasefire. It was put on the table at the United Nations for a vote yesterday. And, you know, at the Security Council, only five countries, according to United Nations rules, are allowed to block it, to veto it. Russia, China, Britain, France, and the United States. Britain yesterday abstained. All other countries supported it. The United Nations opposed it. Veto. You know, I felt sorry for Robert Wood, the deputy U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. He had to explain why he cast his veto. He said that the resolution did not condemn the October 7th attack on Israel by Hamas. So because that did not appear, dear Israel, you have the green light to continue your slaughter. No ceasefire. But I didn't know whether to laugh or cry when he said, we told Israel to be careful not to attack civilians and not to damage civilian property, civilian structures. Uncle, <laughs> uh, what are you smoking? Hmm? What do you think happened over the past two months? While, and while you were speaking at the UN itself yesterday, you silly goat, or should I say ostrich, the bombing was carrying on, the killing was carrying on while you were speaking. But you know what? has come out of this attack on Gaza. What has come out? Two remarkable things. It was always clear that Israel is above the law. International law, human rights law, Geneva Convention, etc., etc. It shows the two fingers to United Nations resolutions. It is a law unto itself. And therefore, it can be defined as a rogue state. It always behaved like that. But now the world can see it very, very clearly, very starkly. No excuses can be made. And also what the world sees clearly is that the United States is, is uh, captured by this tiny rogue state. Imagine that the world's so-called superpower describing itself as a beacon of democracy, human rights and justice stands with the rogue state, a state that defies all conventions, international laws, resolutions, Huh? And then 
The mighty United States vetoes a call to stop the wholesale butchery of civilians. Human Rights Watch said this last night. It says, by continuing to provide Israel with weapons and diplomatic cover as it commits atrocities, including collectively punishing the Palestinian civilian population in Gaza, the U.S. risks complicity in war crimes. The U.S. has been complicit in war crimes a long time ago. Hmm? No doubt, dear listeners, the U.S. has blood, the blood of the Palestinians on its hands. Question five. Hey, you people huh, who are shouting, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Are you calling for the destruction of Israel? Are you saying that Israel does not have the right to exist? From the river to the sea means from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Israel is in, in that part of the land. That means Israel does not have a right to exist? Huh? And that question has been fired at me so often. And here is my answer. Does Israel have a right to exist at the expense of Palestinian suffering? You throw the question right back at them. Eh? Does Israel have a right to exist at the expense of Palestinian suffering? Did apartheid South Africa have a right to exist as it did subjugating an entire people? The answer is no. Israel has no right to exist as an apartheid state. Bottom line, the South African solution, that's what it's supposed to be all about. All the people must live in the, la in the land from the river to the sea with equal rights. Halas. Right? Okay, let me end with this. In self-defense, in self-defense, poet, professor, and writer Rifat al-Arir was killed by an Israeli strike. Israeli airstrikes on Gaza have killed renowned Palestinian writer, poet, and professor Rifat al-Arir and six members of his family. And in, almost in anticipation of meeting his fate, a week or two ago, he wrote this. It's been translated from Arabic. If I must die, you must live. To tell my story, to sell my things, to buy a piece of cloth and some strings, make it white with a long tail, so that a child somewhere in Gaza, while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting his dad who left in a blaze and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself, seize the kite, my kite you made, flying up above. And think for a moment, an angel is there, bringing back love. If I must die, let it bring hope, let it be a tale. <sighs> well, there you are. Lots and lots and lots of sadness. Sadness continues. And so, dear listeners, that's my story for today. I'm going to leave you with a, a, a clip. Uh, Josh Paul worked at the United States State, De State Department. He resigned over U.S. arms sales to Israel. 
And uh, we're going to finish up with uh, Christian Amanpour uh, interviewing him on CNN. So take a listen. But anyway, let me just finish up and, uh, and uh, well, maybe cheer you up. <laughs> you know, I have a definition of happiness. Yeah, I'm going to have a definition of happiness for you. Are you ready? Happiness is opening an ice cream container. Let me start again. Happiness is opening an ice cream container and finding ice cream in it instead of samosas or leftover metibaji. <laughs> this is David Alji bidding you all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.